I'd like to begin reading, although we're in verses 15 and 16, you'll see this week why uh, we have chosen to, to look at two verses. But uh, the context of it really begins in the first chapter of Hebrews. But if we would take it back to its most immediate context, we would have to begin with verse 12. And so what we'll do is we'll read verse 12 through 16, and then we'll pray. Verse 12, it says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance Firm until the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Let us pray. Most wonderful Heavenly Father, as we gather today, Lord, we just pray that it truly be in your name, God, for your namesake for uh, your glorification god that you would make this thing holy that you would make holy our worship to you that you would receive it god and be glorified in it and we pray that as we do read lord that you would gather the truths of christ in the text lord and pour them out abundantly in spirit so that we may discern them lord that we would be joyful over them that we would be sorrowful over sin, God, but that we would delight in seeing Christ in every jot and in every tittle. Lord, we just pray that uh, you would work mightily in your people, Lord, in their lives and in their hearts, Lord, in their minds, that they would be consecrated truly unto thee, Lord, with the many ailments that we have uh, uh, with those in the church, Miss McCoy and Miss Cheryl and, and Jody and James, God, and with the neighbor Louise here, Lord, we would just pray for your healing hand upon them that they might uh, worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord, that they may glorify your name, God. And we pray that together as those who would gather corporately to worship today, Lord, that we would truly be here for the namesake of Jesus, to exalt his name and to proclaim him to the world, Lord, that we would be fed so well today that we would go here, Lord, hungering only for those things of the Spirit, Lord, that we would look to your word day in and day out and that we would be uh, renewed each day by the truths of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So notice uh, some similarities here. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, to those things that we've spoken of so many Sundays before. And it really begins there with, with 14. It says, For we have become partakers of Christ. We talked about that. We talked about what it means to be partakers of Christ. And we'll revisit that as well again today. But it says, We've become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end while it is said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me and we've seen this overarching cry to God's people and to those who would profess to believe in the name of Jesus do not harden your hearts 
Why is it sad? It's because man is so given into hardening his own heart. We love hardened hearts. If you don't believe that we love hardened hearts, just look at the TV, listen to the radio, and listen to the appeal to the things that the flesh desires. Cars, homes, toys, electronics, uh, sexual media, you name it, it is there because it is appealing to a generation that is every generation that we heard of in Matthew. 14 generations before, during, and after. It's every generation since Adam that is desiring the things of the flesh and that is what the hardening of the heart is. We're dealing with sin and flesh when we talk about hardening of the heart. Verse 15 is very clear and it's a keen reminder many times throughout the text of Hebrews because the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Yet Jesus said that he knew the hearts of men. And, and I would tell you this morning that it is very easy after realizing the gospel to know the hearts of men. The hearts of men is wicked. The heart of men is naturally self-hardening. And there is nothing that a doctor can do for you. There is no medication. There is only one thing that we must do, and that is repent and fall before a wonderful, holy God and trust that His Son, Jesus Christ, has indeed done what is necessary to reverse this hardening of the heart. And not only has He done what is necessary, but He has equipped those who belong to Him to combat this hardening of the heart. And what we see in verse 15 as it appeals to this natural man, as it's appealing to man who has come to Christ saying, look, if you truly believe God, if you've been a partaker in Christ, if you have been transformed by the gospel, then you better be careful because you will be given to that natural heart. And the appeal with verse 15 is really studied and characterized by verses 12 through 14. Take care. Warning. Heed this, that there not be in any one of you evil. What are we worried about? We're worried about the hardened heart and the, the, the voice of reason. The Spirit is speaking here in verse 12. Take care, brethren, those who believe. Take care that you have no evil. An unbelieving heart falls away from the living God. There is the danger of a, of a hardened heart. You know, the danger of a hardened heart in sin is not necessarily... Uh, the punishment of sin. And we think about that. And we think, well, it's just terrible because if I do this, I'm going to be punishing. No, the hardest part of a hardened heart is understanding that that separates us from being able to believe and to exercise belief in Jesus Christ. You know, hell is just the result of sin. But the worst part about hell is that Christ is not there with love and mercy. That you can neither take joy in the place or in the people that will be there with you. Heaven is altogether the opposite, right? It's a place where Christ is there. And not just with like hell, the wrath of God being present, but the love and mercy and grace and wonders and amazement of Christ. The one who has died on our behalf. The propitiation. He is there. And heard John say it so many times before me, and I'll continue to say it. Jesus is who makes heaven so heavenly. 
There's nothing else. It's not streets of gold. My goodness, if you're going for streets of gold, you won't be going. You'll never see them. If you're looking for mansions, literally, you'll never see them. But if you are looking for Christ, you'll see all that He has done. And all that He has touched. And so as we look at verse 15, we see the characterization of the warning of the hardened heart. Unbelieving heart falls away from the living God, but encourage one another. Day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How can we get away from this hardened heart? Well, you'll see there's a responsibility on behalf of those who gather and call themselves themselves the church. And it says to encourage one another day to day. You know, the message from the pulpit may be super convicting some Sundays, and you may leave here thinking, I am a terrible sinner. But you know what that says? It says the truths of what we see in verses 13, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is encouraging us day after day to follow this Jesus Christ because we know that we're sinners. Man, if we don't see that we're sinners, we cannot follow Christ. We cannot see that we're sinners if we do not see Christ. And we cannot see Christ unless we're together encouraging one another, unless we're going out on individual terms according to the Scriptures, going out and making disciples, going out and preaching the Gospel, going out and evangelizing. You see how important the work is of the church. Many members, one body, exercising faith. You know, that's the funny thing about a treadmill and workout equipment. There's houses full of them, and they got fat people, and they got unhealthy people, and they got people who can't walk. Though all of these tools are no good unless we're exercising them, right? Such as the gifts of the Spirit. I believe Paul has been very clear about that through his text. These things are no good unless we are exercising it really hits home both spiritually and physically I've got a few proverbial unused treadmills myself both spiritually and physically but the idea is that unless there is this faith that is exercised there is truly no faith. There is no salvation. There is no preaching of the word. There is no hearing of the word. And there is certainly no doing of the word. Be careful that you aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why? Because we have become. We once were not. There's the, there's the telltale sign of humanity. This telltale sign of total depravity. For we have become. And that means if we have become, we once were something else. There is none good, no, not one. Jesus said, as the rich young ruler came to him, why do you call me good? Why would you call me good? And I would submit to you that we can call none good unless we see Christ. Unless we... Taste Christ. And that's what it's talking about here. Becoming partakers. 
holding fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. You know what that tells me? That the beginning of faith should look just like the end of faith. And what that is telling the church is that there is no new program that will bring someone in. There is no new gospel that will bring someone in. But that very same gospel that saves better be the same one that we're clinging to every moment, every second. And that means that Jesus Christ is the only way. There is none other. You can't come to the Father unless you come through me. Jesus is very clear. No uncertain terms. He is stating his case and his existence as the monopoly on salvation. And I would say, who needs anyone else? Who needs anyone other than Jesus? And so as we see this, characterization of verse 15 by verses 12 through 14 we see that the saints have a privilege and the saints have a reward and that is the partaking of Christ our privilege is that we have partaken of Christ and our privilege is that we will partake in those things that belong to Christ the inheritance that is Christ that's life And all that his kingdom has to offer. Righteousness. All of these things that cannot be obtained by sinful man unless it be through Christ. Here is the privilege. And he is also the reward. There's nothing else to compare it to. There's no analogy that I can make to the privilege being the reward. What a reward it is to have a Savior who is able to save and who is willing to save a wretch like me when the text of the hymn says it. And what wonderful news is there to have this reward who is in Christ and then be able with these dying, cursed, wicked lips and tongue to proclaim His goodness to the church. But not just to the church, but to the unrighteous, to the unsaved, to the unbeliever. Our reward truly is revealed in verses 12 through 15 when we look at this partaking of Christ and that our reward and our privilege is that now we who had roots that were severed, uh, branches that were withered, no leaves, nothing bearing, now we can bear fruit. What a reward to bear fruit where none could be given. Try as we may, no fruit would be brought forth without Christ. And yet, he is saying, here is your reward to bear fruit. And what is that fruit but none other than a privilege? It's a privilege to serve Christ. It's a privilege to bear love, to bring hope, to bring patience, peace, kindness, gentleness. Any of these. It's, it's, a, it's a passion that we should have for the gospel. It's a fruit, it's a reward, and it is a privilege Does Paul not oftentimes through his epistles tell us and describe to us what a wonderful amazement it is to bring forth this reward and this privilege? He says, I am the chief of sinners. Who could I be to to bring this gospel to you? Who am I to preach the Christ? What a privilege. We have a privilege and a reward that is to bear fruit where we could not once bear fruit. And to live as He lived on earth and to live with Him eternally in heaven forever. If you'd like to see this stated in other terms, turn to Romans 
chapter 7. As you turn to Romans chapter 7 and look at verse 4. This is how we can understand what Paul meant when he says to live as Christ, to die as gain. He says in verse 4 in Romans chapter 7, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Look at that statement. It's talking about this privilege and reward described through to us in verses 12 through 15. He says, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may. Think about that. It's, it's, there's the reward. So that you may. The reward is so that you can have something and so that you can do something that you could not before. So that you may belong to another he's saying before that you belong to your father the devil you were destined for hell there was a hot place there's fire brimstone gnashing of teeth the worm never dies your thirst is never quenched christ is not there there is no righteousness there is no good there is no holiness and he's saying but you may belong by dying with christ you may belong reward to him who has been raised to Jesus, who is not just man, but this Jesus, who is God, who as we read this morning, it was so awesome, Pat, in the Sunday school, it happens every single week. If you miss Sunday school, we feel for you because this happens every week. The Spirit is bringing passages that are so relevant to what we're learning. And Pat even read the text about reading the Scriptures this morning. And we read in the Scriptures this morning the lineage of Jesus the Christ. All those generations, all those names that we butchered, all of them. And it's telling us that this is Jesus, the man who came from Mary, who came from the line of David, who was uh, born of this virgin. It said that he did not know her until she had Jesus, until she bore Jesus. And then it tells us he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so he had met every model of Old Testament Scripture, of Old Testament prophecy. He's the Son of God. He comes living a righteous life. It says he lived and he sinned not. He was tempted, but he did not fail. And here is this Christ, and now his divine side is being shown to us. And that is him who has been raised. There has been no mere man raised from the dead, except for when it did happen, Christ did it. Even in the Old Testament, when we see a, a man, and we see it a few times, raised from the dead, Christ did it. No man has ever been raised from the dead unless it be by God. And I admit and submit to you that when Christ was raised, the Bible says that Christ raised Himself. It says elsewhere that God raised Him. It says elsewhere that the Spirit raised Him. Why? Because they cannot be separated. One triune God. He is one. None before Him, none for Him. Before him, nor shall there be after him, he knows not one. The way, the truth, the life. Every time I think about a triune God, I see so many times in Scripture where Christ is describing himself and he uses three terms. Start looking. 
When Christ says something about himself, oftentimes you'll see it three ways he's described. And it always causes me to be reminded of this triune God. And we see there the reward. You may belong to him who has been raised from the dead. What is so good about that? Because he will not suffer you to perish. The Bible is very clear. He is not willing that any should perish. Long suffering to who? The church. To us word. Not willing that any should perish. There's the reward. Belonging to Him so that we may belong to Him instead of belonging to Satan, the one who is already defeated, the one who will drag us down. And then it says the privilege in order that we may bear fruit. There's the privilege. The privilege is to bear the fruit of the cross. To bear the fruit of Jesus Christ. Can you think about it when you go to the supermarket and you get down in the fruit aisle? fruit aisle smells good. Now just think about how wonderful it is for God to look upon us and see the bearing and smell the savoring fruit of Jesus Christ. That's how God sees us. But yet the gospel calls us to see God in Christ, to see that He is divine, to see that He is God, and to see that we are sinful, to remind us of just how sweet that fruit is. Just how important It is. We see there the emphasis is upon becoming a partaker. And we talked about it. Partaking in Christ's Spirit. 2 Timothy verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. There's the Spirit of God that we are allowed to partake in because, let's just be honest, man is scared. Scared what someone thinks of us. Scared of not being prosperous. Scared of doing without. Scared of not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. I mean, God has to warn us, and I say it many times, it's one of my favorite scriptures, fear not the one who can destroy the body, but the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Man is fearing everything and everyone except for God. This is why we're given the commandments. Have no other God before me. Why? Because we place so many things above God because we're fearful. Fearful of doing without. And you know, the reality is that the fear that says, Oh, you'll do without unless you sin, unless you go after this, unless you run and chase after these desires. The truth is that we are causing ourselves through the deceitfulness of our own hearts, the hardening of our own hearts, to do without Christ. To do without a Savior. So we're partakers. We're partakers in the Spirit. We're also partakers in Christ's nature. Isn't that wonderful? That's what... The changing and sanctification is all about being transformed from the nature of this man who loves sin and corruption, who runs swiftly with his feet to do things that he ought not to do, to iniquity, to death, to murder, hatred. They're all the same. But it says that we now have not this spirit of fear, but a spirit that belongs to Christ. And then we have this nature Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Think about this. Before Christ has ever taken on the flesh, Ezekiel says this, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Boy, that doesn't sound like the natural man, does it? That's the nature of Christ. To do the work and to reap the reward. And then we're given as partakers the love of Christ. You know what? You wouldn't come here today and you couldn't love you couldn't love Barbara, you couldn't love Jimmy, you couldn't love Charlie or anyone else in this room. You couldn't even love your spouse if it were not for Christ. Do you wonder how unbelievers can actually have marriages that work? Because Christ said, this is a picture of my church. And the picture of his church will not be tarnished by man in no way, shape, form, or fashion. By unbelievers or believers, the truth is that the marriage will hold true and that love for one another can somehow exist because it pictures Christ in the church. Pictures Christ in the church. Partakers. In spirit, in nature, in love, in mercy. Anyone here receive mercy from someone in this congregation? Good night. It's not of their natural man. It's of Jesus Christ. Mercy and grace. Think about this. How many times in an epistle do you hear this? May the grace and peace of God be multiplied to you. You can't do it of your own. But yet there is something there that leads Peter and that leads Paul to believe that to the church they can have grace and they can have peace and they can have love and they can have joy. This is partaking in Christ. These men knew that you could not get this any other way, that this is not obtainable through any other thing. They were religious men. Paul, a zealous man. And those things were not obtainable to Paul until he encountered Christ on the Damascus road. Righteousness. Boy, there's the big one, right? Righteousness. Partakers in His righteousness. You know why? Because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not enter. There's no getting around. There's no back door. There's no VIP pass. There's no special givers. You gave enough, we're just going to let you in. This is it. We need the righteousness of Christ. Partakers of Christ have His righteousness. And you know what? And that's exactly what it's like to partake unworthily of the Lord's Supper. You know, I, I mentioned it a while back. I heard someone, a uh, very prominent pastor, say that it's a means of grace. And I would disagree because the Bible says that we can partake unworthily. I don't think it's a means of grace to eat and drink judgment to yourself. If you partake unworthily. Therefore I have to look at it and say. Okay now if we partake worthily. What are we getting? We're receiving the righteousness of Christ. Not through the drink. Not through the bread. But it says do this in remembrance of me. You know what? That's what worship is about. Worship is not about a musical instrument. It's not about a piano or a guitar. It's not about your voice. It's about the words that are coming out of your mouth. That are glorifying God. That are exalting Christ. This is how you have the righteousness of Christ. Because you are singing those wonderful words of life. Because you are preaching those wonderful words of life. Because you are preaching a Savior who is able to save. Therein is this fruit of partaking in Christ. And His righteousness. Without it, no one will enter. In partaking in Christ's righteousness and entering into His kingdom. It's default that everyone partakes in His inheritance. 
That's the wonderful part about adoption. That as Christ gives, He gives all that belongs to Him. What a birthright shown to us in the Old Testament. Prophesied and lived through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That the one who had the rights, Hebrews started that way, right? God who at sundry times and diverse manners had in, uh, in times past spoken to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us through His Son whom is the heir of all things, it goes on to say. The heir of all things. It is His inheritance is what the Bible is saying. Hebrews chapter 1 began like that. It's saying, this is Christ and here it is saying, you're partakers, now you have an inheritance. Life everlasting. The kingdom that belongs to Him. James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. There's the reality of all of that partaking in Christ and what that means. That we will endure temptation. And that's showing us that, that hardening of the heart that we can overcome if we hold fast the beginning. That's the perseverance. The perseverance is proving that we will endure temptation through Christ and through His Word alone. For when we are tried, we shall receive this crown of life. The Lord hath promised. And Carl Mantle said this, and I'll never forget it. The Lord is no Indian giver. How true it is. It really is true. He's no Indian giver. He doesn't give anything that he intends to take back. And then to partake in this Christ as we see it. Putting off this hardening of the heart is to understand the shift in man's desire. There's what partaking in Christ's righteousness, His mercy, His love, His nature, His will... Partaking in Christ means that we are shifting from one desire to another. From one nature to another. That we're shifting from the desire for the things that are here and now. And we're shifting that desire to focus on that which has already been done and that which shall be. You want to see how that comes out in the text? Colossians chapter 3 describes it this way. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. How does that change? Our desires are no longer to serve self. It's no longer to serve the boss. It's no longer to serve your wife or to the, the desires that you have with your finances to buy whatever the world may offer. But it says, do it as if it was done to the Lord and not for man. That means not for self. So what do we have when we are partakers of Christ? Our shift is from dis, uh, serving self, from serving man, mere man, because that's what we're doing. We're serving one man or another. And then Christ comes, He changes, and we're serving one who is not merely man, but one who is both man and God. Not for men. Partakers, therefore, must be conformed. Conform to what God says. Jesus says, if you love me, you will do my commandments. You'll keep my commandments. You'll love my precepts. Old Testament and new. Same Jesus Christ. 
You search the scriptures. You think you have eternal life. They testify of me. Jesus is saying over and over, there is this shift. Partakers must be conformed. Baptist bath won't work. Can't get dunked and think that you can go home the rest of your life. Not serve Christ. Partakers are conformed. Partakers are conformed because partakers are transformed. Transformed from the inside out. He said it there. He's giving a new heart. New heart. New nature. New desire. New will. New love. Behold all things become new. Uh, It sounds like a, a redundant message. I believe it is. Hebrews is telling us time and time again. Reminding us. We need to become new. And I think about it. I'm going I'm, I'm to preach a sermon on it. I've done it before, but the Lord is just tearing at my heart about this. The disciples were asked, the apostles were asked, how can we be saved? Repent and believe. But what the truth was, Jesus said it. It's impossible. We need Christ. And if you've got him, you've got enough of him to be saved, but you don't have enough of him to be satisfied. That's what the Christian life is like. We're not satisfied. We want more of Christ. They're talking about it. Partakers are conformed. They're transformed. Partakers, like we saw last week, are guarders of the treasure. Guard the treasure. We see it spoken of Paul. To Timothy. Guard the treasure. And guarders truly of the treasure. that They are transformed. And then they are conformed. And they are guarding this treasure. But you know what true guardians of treasure do? We talked about it last week. They are investors in it. And they are investors of it. Burying those talents won't suffice. The master will not be happy. They're investors in it. They're pouring their life in it. The new desires of the heart is to be conformed and consumed by Christ's gospel to invest everything that you have. He said it. Take all that you have and give it to the poor. Hadn't done that yet. The disciples were amazed, right? Take all that you have and transform it into kingdom work for Jesus Christ. Put it all there. Bank on it. You know, that's what we do with everything else. We put everything else that we consider treasure and we invest it into something. Why are we not investing in the gospel? Garters of the treasure invest in it. And garters of the treasure invest of it. They invest their efforts. Mind, body, soul, given to Christ. And then they take that and they give it to someone else. They disciple someone else. They tell someone else about Christ. And then so what we see here, if this holding fast is true, it is certainly perseverance that has been speak, speak, spoken of, excuse me here, and it must be a foregone conclusion and evidence of partaking truly in Christ, partaking worthily. And then it says hold fast. Hold fast. 
it seems in our minds that that's very simple, but I, I thought about hold fast, tightly secured, without fail, and continually. Holding fast means immediately and permanently and tightly. And when I was preparing for the sermon and I thought about holding fast, there's a, a couple hymns that come to mind, or a couple songs rather. One of them's pretty modern. It's called He Will Hold Me Fast. And I like it, but you know, I thought of it in the simplest terms. Like a child, this little light of mine. Boy, there's an, a garner of the treasure, an investor in it, an investor of it. One who is persevering, one who is holding fast. And then we come to verse 16. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? This is a, a profound statement. This tells us with the broad brush who is guilty. And that's every man. That's every man. Who's provoked God? If you haven't provoked God, then you don't need to be in church. You can't be the church. Only those who know that they have. All who rebelled in the wilderness, they provoked him. And it says, although they had heard, they had heard this word. Here is the, the failure of the wilderness wanderers in verses 12 through 15 being relived because that is exactly what we are doing as walking. Those walking through this wilderness, this life, we are prone to wander. Prone to wonder doesn't mean just walk away. Prone to wonder is really telling us the, the reality that we are prone to rebel. The wondering is just what happens when we do. Although they had heard, Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 3, And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. Even still we see mercy, for all have sinned and fallen short. Yes, even the saints. And that's what the Bible is telling us. All have fallen short. Unto this very day. Doesn't that make salvation wonderful? Doesn't that paint Christ in a new light for some. The son of man sent to the children. God's calling them children. Before they acted like children. Election. Predestination anyone. A rebellious nation. They weren't righteous. They weren't truly God fearing. They hath rebelled against me he said. And their fathers as well. Even unto this very day. Seen it all. Heard it all. But the text says. We must hold fast. Who provoked when they heard? Boy. What a condemning statement. We see the mercy of God. And the righteousness of Christ. And that we have received grace. Those of us who to this very day sin against God. The wickedness of man is described here. 
and those who provoke God. And it's a disease. And it's communicable. And I'll tell you how you get it. There's only one way to get wickedness, and that's just to be born. If that's the case, i got a sister that's probably exempt. My dad said she was hatched. But to be born, it's a disease that is communicable by birth. This sinfulness, this wickedness, this transgression against God. The Bible is telling us none is excluded. And some will say, what about Joshua? He was a sinner. You don't have to worry about that. He was a sinner. He wandered among the rest of the sinners. What about anyone? You just name them. Abraham, Moses, sinners, transgressors, provokers of God. Anyone born. None is excluded. Who can question such a truth? Who can deny it? Who would dare? The unrighteous who do not know Christ will deny it. Those who are in Christ will embrace the truth and absorb it with the mercies of God. Wonder and amazement will never cease. And the truth is that many will hear this gospel and will continue to deny the truths of Jesus Christ and His salvation and their need for it. And in doing so, they deny God. If you think that we can just talk any way that we want, that we can cuss and yell and scream as a habitual practice and be a Christian, it's not possible. James said it, chapter 1, verse 26. Think you're religious, but don't bridle your tongue. Your religion is worthless. Think you can be a part of the church that truly belongs to Christ. And not assemble, and not love righteousness, and not combat sin, and not give to Christ what belongs to Him, both temporally and spiritually. You're denying Him. There is no life in that. So, what I see as I make my way through verse 16 is I see two passages of Scripture that sum up what has been said in just such a short verse. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His external, excuse me, eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when, no, when they knew, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man 
and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Talk about partaking in Christ. Deceitfulness of sin. I would imagine that these brethren who were receiving this epistle were receiving such from the penman because he saw an urgency. Because sin is so devastating and we know not the hour that he was writing and he could have written all this but he said it so much plainer and so much simpler because he was in a hurry because sin is killing and sin is causing man to die. He's causing man to stray from Christ, to stray from the cross. And he could have said all these things, but he said, you've become partakers. We must hold fast from the beginning this assurance. Today, if we hear his voice, do not harden these hearts. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the Lord when he cometh shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken to. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speaketh thou this parable unto us or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to beat the men, servant, and maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in asunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew the Lord's will... And prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto ever, uh, for, excuse me, for unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Now, if we were to sum this up, the call, the reward, 
And then the responsibility could be said with those few words. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. If you can sit in this room today and say that Christ is so much that he is your savior, then you have been given this much. Now much is required beyond the scope of Sundays and Wednesdays and corporate worship. But bodies as a living sacrifice, the Bible says. Because he does not dwell in houses built by the hands of men, right? Your bodies, your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength shall be devout to Christ and no one else because to you much is given. And in, the text doesn't even take it far enough. To you, everything has been given. Christ is everything. Provocation? Who provoked him? What is this provocation? Unless we understand it to be the execution and the employment of the wrath of God unto those to whom a duty has been bestowed. We just talked about it. Much is required. And that yet when much is not given, we are provoking the holy, true, triune God of the Bible to employ His wrath because we are unfaithful servants. Bestowed to us a great duty, a great responsibility, a great mandate to those whom the riches of heaven have been revealed unto and handed down, yet they have fallen on their own sword. That's what Hebrews chapter 3 is talking about. Falling on your own sword. How powerful is the flesh. The sword is issued... To us by Christ, right? The Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, the sword of the Spirit. It's given under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. No man wrote these things, but men were inspired by God to write these things. They wrote things that had not yet happened, yet we see all of these prophecies fulfilled, and yet they take these swords given to them by Christ. This is the light unto all men, by which the receivers of it, instead of wielding the sword, have smothered her flames have deprived her of the breath of life, and then we can go back to that little light of mine. Instead of fanning the flame, smothered it. That's the falling on the sword. Taking the Word of God and instead of wielding it as we should, defensively and offensively to corrupt the sin in our own lives, the sin in the world, to bring the Jesus to light. You know, nobody can see the blade if it's in the scabbard. No one can see the Word of God if it is not preached from the lips of man. The Bible says it. It's the foolishness of preaching that God delights in, that He brings man to salvation, that they would hear the Word, that they would respond to the gospel. The Bible here is saying that many all have provoked God to employ His wrath, yet the mercy of God in Christ is shown to some. What shall you do with it? Shall we be those who 
engage in the hardening of our own heart. Instead, we should ask, how great is our sin? How great is the sin that I beset before God? And then the answer could be this second question. How rich is His mercy? How rich is His mercy? Then in conclusion, I will take you to Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses provoke him? Yet the verse before says, Do not harden your hearts. And the one before that, We have become partakers if we hold fast. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9. To the church. And let us not be weary in well doing. For in due season... We shall reap if we faint not. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come before you. We're just thankful for Jesus Christ, Lord, that we, uh, we ask, Lord, that our spiritual eyes would see only Christ and see that he is the most wonderful, the most magnificent God, that there is life in his name, that we would respond to his gospel, to your gospel, O oh God with repentance and faith. And Lord, we know that we could not even respond that way if you do not do a mighty work in these hearts. Lord, and if truly our hearts be devout to Christ, God, we pray that you would use us in a mighty way for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory, for the exaltation of your Son. God, employ us by your Spirit to move, God. Lord, to be legs for the gospel, to be lips for Christ. Lord, that we should see tongues confess and knees bow uh, on this side of heaven, God, that people would come to know Christ as this great Savior that He is, Lord, and that we would preach nothing else. God, we just pray that uh, Your Spirit would minister to us the truths of these passages today. Lord, that we would be uh, so consumed by them, Lord, that we would be filled with Christ, that we would be filled with Your Spirit, Lord, that this spiritual quench thirst that we have would truly be that, just quenched, Lord, with Jesus Christ. That we would thirst no more. That we would move not to another message, but stay here at the cross and see where the blood has been shed. There has been found forgiveness and mercy and salvation. Lord, would we lift your name up for it? Could we praise you, God? Would you receive it, Lord, and bless us with discernment and knowledge that is from above? Lord, let us see others to be born again. Lord, this harvest that will be reaped by your word and by those servants who belong to you. God, we just thank you for it. Thank you for our part, uh, Lord, for allowing us... uh, to, as you said, foolishly preach this gospel unto repentance. And Lord, we just ask that you would forgive us where we fall short. Lord, and provide grace and mercy to us, Lord. And just give us hearts to serve Christ and to love one another as you 
have commanded, Lord. We also ask that as we move to our evening um, sermon, Lord, that you would just bless us there. Lord, and with the lunch, that you would bless us with the, the food that you've provided, Lord, that we would be in amazement that the God who has saved us has also, uh, for even the unregenerate man, provided temporal sustenance. Now that there's no food over there that you have not caused to grow. There is no meat that is given, Lord, that you did not create. And Lord, we just pray that uh, you would use it for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.